Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Defendant was on trial for murder. There was strong evidence indicating his guilt, but no body had ever been found. In the defense's closing statement, the lawyer, because there'd been a whole ton of evidence that seemed to indicate that his defendant might be guilty, the the, the lawyer, knowing that his client would likely be convicted, he resorted to a trick in his closing statement. He, He said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you all, the lawyer said as he looked at his watch. Within one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk into the courtroom. He looked towards the courtroom door. The juror, somewhat stunned, also joined him and looking at the courtroom door. A minute passed and nothing happened. And finally, the lawyer said, actually, I made up the previous statement. But you all looked on with anticipation. You, you all looked towards the courtroom door. It shows me that you all have reasonable doubt that my client is innocent. The jurors were dismissed to go and to deliberate. And then a few minutes later, they came back and handed down the decision. And the decision was guilty. The lawyer was blown away. He said, how did you find him guilty? And how did you find him guilty so fast? You guys all looked towards the courtroom door to see if he was going to come in. And the foreman of the jury stood up and said, we all looked, but the defendant didn't look. He said, the thing is, there was no reasonable doubt. First service enjoyed that story more than you guys did. Maybe I told it better, I don't even know. Today we're kicking off this series called Reasonable Doubt, and we're going to be talking about these things, the the fact that all of us at some point in our faith journey wrestle with doubt. We're going to be talking about some of the biggest things that that cause us to think deeply and wrestle with some doubt, and so I'm excited for this series together. If you have your Bibles, go over to Luke chapter 7. Here's the first thing I want you to know. Disciples of Jesus have wrestled with some doubts from the beginning. It's always been a part of the Christian experience, moments, seasons of wrestling with doubt. We see in Luke chapter seven, John the Baptist is in jail and John tells his disciples, he calls two of them together and he, he sent them to the, to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, are you the one who is to come? So John sending a message with his disciples to go to Jesus, asking the question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you this question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So here's what we see. We see John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, 
the one who baptized Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. When he's baptizing Jesus, this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest person who'd ever been born, has this moment where life's not going as he expected. He's experienced some disappointment. He's in jail and he begins to wonder, maybe Jesus isn't the one. To the point where he sends his disciples to say, Jesus, are you the one or should we begin to look for somebody else? It's this, this doubt thing. If John the Baptist experienced it, why would we think that we never would? And then we see this moment in Matthew chapter 28. Now the church tradition I grew up in, one of the favorite verses to be talked about was Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which people call the Great Commission. Jesus, soon before he would ascend to heaven, says, go make disciples of the whole world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And, and Matthew 28, 19 and 20 gets talked about a lot, but what didn't get talked about a lot was the couple of verses before, Matthew 28, 16 and 17. This is after the resurrection. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. These people had been with Jesus for three years, seen him do miracle after miracle. Now they've seen him resurrected, hung out with him for weeks, and there's still something inside some of them that say, maybe this is too good to be true. They're going to this place Jesus said, and, and what we see is we see this simultaneous doubt and worship. Have you ever had a moment like that? I've had moments like that where I'm in the middle of worshiping and I just have this thought like, maybe this is too good to be true. It's what's going on with these guys is that we see from the beginning, followers of Jesus have had moments of doubt. J.C. Ryle said it this way, doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. Charles Spurgeon, who's thought of as maybe the greatest preacher of all time, they call him the Prince of Preachers, said it this way. Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. That's a guy who was the greatest preacher in London. He was the greatest preacher in all of England. At the time, he may have been the greatest preacher alive. And he said, hey, sometimes I have some doubts. And here's the thing. The church should be the safest place on earth to wrestle with doubt. Jude chapter 1 Verse 22, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, says it this way, be merciful to those who doubt. The Greek word translated doubt here, it refers to this a wavering, a hesitancy, an uncertainty, a lack of confidence. And I can't help but think about Jude, this half-brother of Jesus. Now, that we know in John 7, verse 5, that Jesus' brothers early on did not believe in Jesus. At some point later, at least some of his brothers did. James and Jude became leaders in the early church. But at some earlier on, they didn't believe. John 7, 5 tells us that. 
And you can imagine if your brother is making these claims about himself that he's the son of God. If you're his brothers, you have this instinct like, I'll show you son of God, bam, bam, bam. Like that would just be your instinct, right? If your sibling is like having this God complex and, and always is right and always is the favored child, never does anything wrong, you would want to cause him harm and you're, you're not believing in all of that unless something remarkable happens like seeing him resurrected from the dead. But when Jude tells us to be merciful to those who doubt, I can't help but wonder, was he speaking from his experience with his older brother? In those moments where Jesus begins his ministry and his whole family thought he was mentally ill, as you would if your sibling began to do these things and say these things that he was saying, they thought he was a crazy person. I wonder if Jesus responded to them with mercy. And, the, and if those memories of those encounters of how Jesus treated his younger brother, half-brother Jude, when he was doubting, when he wasn't believing, that, the, it, that that mercy informed the way that Jude tells us to handle people who wrestle with doubt. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. And I, I think some people leave the church because they don't feel safe in their doubts there. See, I think the way it goes a lot of times is there's people that begin to wrestle with questions or doubts at like a three or a four on a scale of one to 10. And then Christians respond poorly to that, and then it quickly takes their doubts to like an eight or a nine. Like, I don't know about you, I have my greatest doubts about the faith when I see Christians on social media with all of the courage behind a keyboard. That's why I'm off social media like 90%. Claire caught me back on Twitter the other day and I was, felt like I'd been caught in some great sin. And um, I'm on Twitter and, uh, because it makes me crazy because when I'm on there, I'm like, oh, there are some stupid Christians out there. <laughs> and I'm like, there's some mean Christians out there. And I think for some people, they begin to wrestle with doubt and questions at a three or a four and a one to 10. And, and then the, they, Christians respond poorly and then it causes their doubts to even increase. And so Jude tells us, be merciful, be kind to those who wrestle with doubt. What does that look like? I wanna give you some tips. Express love, express mercy, express empathy, express, hey, I want you to know that I love you and, and, and then I'm gonna keep loving you. No matter where this journey ends with you, I'm gonna keep loving you. And my love for you isn't dependent on us agreeing 100% on every topic. I love you. And then don't panic. Don't get mad. Don't, don't, a lot of times what happens is, is people that we love, maybe a child or spouse, family member, friend, begins to wrestle with doubt and then that scares us. Depending on how significant and serious those doubts are, it scares us. Many times our fears manifest as anger and then we say all the wrong things. And a thing to remember is that a measure of this, especially if you're a younger person, a, a, a measure of a moment in your life, a season in your life, where you begin to wrestle with this faith that I've been handed from, 
from my church or from my parents, this faith that I've inherited at some level, wrestling through and, and, and the process of, of it becoming something you take ownership of and that becomes your own faith. And so a measure of this and is normal, especially in the life of a young person or an even an older person that never had that season of wrestling with is, is the faith that I have received going to become something I own personally. And so a measure of wrestling with these things can be a, a normal part of the human development. It can be a positive sign of them taking ownership of their faith. So don't panic. Here's the third thing. If you're dealing with someone that you love that's wrestling with some serious doubt, listen five times more than you talk. It is ineffective to try to argue someone out of their doubts. Avoid condemnation. Avoid platitudes. Avoid, avoid anything on a Christian bumper sticker. Avoid anything on a Christian t-shirt. Avoid phrases that are dismissive, like the Bible says it. I believe it, that settles it. Well, now you've shown that you're not a safe place to process deep thinking. We always leave out the part about people interpret it and oftentimes mess it up. And so avoid catchphrases and platitudes that are dismissive. At the right time, humbly ask if, if they would like to hear some things that have helped you as you have wrestled with doubt through your spiritual journey. But I, when, Jude, when Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt, I think it informs how we treat others, but I think it also informs how we treat ourselves in moments where we wrestle with doubt. Where I think Jude's telling us, have mercy on yourself in moments of doubt. And so don't panic. Sometimes we have a moment of doubt and, and we think, does this mean I'm not a Christian? Well, I dare to say that I, I'm pretty sure John the Baptist is in heaven. Pretty sure it all worked out okay for him. I'm pretty sure those disciples that had been with Jesus for three years, seen him resurrected and found themselves in a moment of managing worship and doubt simultaneously, I'm pretty sure they're in heaven. And so having moments of doubt doesn't automatically mean I'm not a Christian. It might mean I'm in, a pro, I'm in a moment of taking ownership of my faith in a fresh way. Here's another thing, don't isolate. Sometimes, in many reasons, because historically the church hasn't gone out of its way to create a safe place to wrestle with things, our instinct is I've got these doubts and I, and I better not tell anybody because if I tell them, then they're gonna say something to me off of a Christian bumper sticker. And maybe, and maybe I'm the only person that's ever had any of these doubts. And, and so then we isolate, we hide, and it's not helpful. Don't isolate. Question your doubts. Ask yourself, is this simply a moment for me to take a fresh ownership of my faith? Allow your doubt to cause you to drive into seeking. I like how Tim Keller says it. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long 
reflection. Another question to ask is, is something else going on with me? That question, am I tired? I don't know about you. A lot of times when I have thoughts of doubt, it's when I'm really tired and everything in the world looks terrible. You ever have moments like that where it's like, I'm so tired. I don't like anybody I know. I don't like my job. I don't like where I live. I don't like this country. I don't like anything. And then so at that moment, I begin to realize whatever thoughts I have aren't the most accurate or helpful. I should go to bed. (laughs) Am I tired? Am I sad? Am I tired? Am I sad? Am I being overly indoctrinated by this cultural moment? Jesus referred to his generation as an unbelieving generation. And and we live in a, a time that uh, is called post-modernity, and it's marked by high levels of distrust and a celebration of what is called deconstruction. This term used originally to speak of, uh, of, of kind of the way people were interpreting various literature, but now it's kind of more used to speak of this kind of larger narrative of tearing down or questioning every previously held belief or norm. And this deconstruction has begun as a word that's begun to be used in people's faith experience. And I, I would propose this. I, I think there's two forms of deconstruction. I think sometimes a form of deconstruction, a form of questioning, has everything that I've always thought about a topic or a view of life. Is this indeed accurate? I think there's a healthy form where we can take an honest look at the beliefs that we've held and wrestle with those beliefs in light of Scripture. And, and, and that can lead to growth and development. And ultimately, that form of deconstruction can form, lead to a reconstruction of a healthier, more robust faith that is more in line with the way of Jesus. But unfortunately, what's likely more common is what I would, would see as an unhealthy form of deconstruction, where instead of asking ourselves, as everything I've always thought about a thing, um, how does it line up in light of Scripture? Instead of evaluating these things in light of Scripture and the way of Jesus, we evaluate them in light of cultural pressures and expectations and the narratives of the time in which we live. And oftentimes, this form of deconstruction can be very, very destructive. And so to ask myself, am, am I being indoctrinated by this spirit of the age that says, trust no one, question everything, and everything that's always been believed to be true can't be true, this deconstruction narrative. Another question to ask is, am I hurt? A great many people who end up deconstructing their faith all the way to no faith, it oftentimes begins by a, a deep hurt at the hands of someone who was claiming the name of Christ. And, and, and if that's happened to you, where you've experienced a, a, a deep hurt at the hands of someone who claims the name of Christ, I, I just want to apologize and, and, ask, and, and just tell you, I'm sorry that happened. And, and uh, that God wishes that had not happened. And he is not, the way, you, that, the way he was represented to you is not who he truly is. Am I hurt? And then the question to ask is, am I experiencing spiritual attack? Am I doubting God's character? Am I doubting his love for me? Am I doubting his intentions towards me? The enemy's end game, the enemy's strategy has, has, has been from the beginning to ask us to, to believe that God is not good, that he does not love us, that he is not for us. Maybe I'm experiencing spiritual attack. And so doubt 
Followers of Jesus have always experienced some doubt. The church should be the safest place for people wrestling with doubt. The third thing is this, Jesus loves to meet us in our doubt. Last week, as we were seeing the Easter narrative, this week we catch up right after Jesus is raised from the dead, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So all the other disciples have seen Jesus. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, but my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas makes the strongest declaration of faith and who Jesus is that we see in all of the gospels. He says, my Lord and my God. How does Thomas go from his doubts to the strongest public declaration of faith that we see? He has an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. See, Jesus meets us in our doubts. See, Jesus knew everything that was going on with Thomas. And I want you to know, whatever you're wrestling with, Jesus knows what's going on with you. Jesus knows your level of knowledge and experience. See, Thomas had doubts the other disciples did not have because the other disciples had knowledge and experience that Thomas had not yet had. We see John 20, 16, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news and said, I've seen the Lord. She was the first one. And she told them that, she'd said, and that he'd said these things to her on the evening of that first day when the disciples were together, when the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. See what Thomas said, he said, I got to see him. And I've got to see, and I want to put my hands where his, where on his nail, where the nails were in his hands and in his side. Well, the, these other people had had a very similar experience. Jesus had appeared to them and showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. Do you ever feel like some of your friends just have a very different spiritual experience than is your norm? You ever have friends, it's like the way they talk, it kind of sounds like angels appear to them every morning. Bring them coffee that is at the exact perfect temperature. Not too hot, not too cold. Coffee never gets cold. It's perfect coffee. And every prayer they pray is answered within eight hours. They pray and it's like, oh, six hours later, it just all happened for me. And the Bible always feels like a personal love letter to them. And part of you is like, that is awesome. And you're happy for them to have that experience. But part of you wrestles with, is something wrong with me? Why don't I get the angel bringing me the coffee every morning? Why don't all my prayers get answered same day exactly as I dreamed? And part of you is like, is something wrong with me? Or is something wrong with them? Are they a crazy person? Are they having religious delusions? Or is God messing with me? And I, th I think Thomas is sort of in this moment where he's like, all of you guys' experience is different than mine. But here's the thing, Jesus was aware of Thomas's knowledge and his experience and he met him in it. And Jesus knows your personality. Anybody have any kids that like are the, like just ask too many questions? You have any people like that in your life? 
I've got two kids like that. My answer is usually, hey, uh, your mom knows more stuff than me. <laughs> and we know that because once a month, Claire reminds us all that she was salutatorian of her high school class. She just kind of works it in a family dinner about once a month. And so I'm like, hey guys, remember mom was salutatorian. She knows more stuff. Take your questions there. And some people are just prone to asking questions. Maybe you're that kind of person. Thomas had a unique personality. We see it in these earlier moments in, in the life of Jesus. We, we, we see it after Lazarus had died and Jesus said, let's go, let's go see him. And, and, and the disciples had warned Jesus. He says, if, if we go back to Judea, like you're saying, you're, the, the people there, they wanna kill you, right? And then we see John eleven fourteen. 14. He says, so then he told him plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake, and I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, here's the thing about that phrase. We can't tell if this is a statement of courage. Like, hey, Jesus, if they're gonna kill you, they can kill me too. We can't tell if this is a sentence of a little bit of cynicism. All right, we're about to die with Jesus. <laughs> or we can't tell if he's just a realist. It's like, all right, here we go. They're gonna kill him. They're probably gonna kill us too. Let's go do this but he, he seems like he's got this realism. He seems like he's very literal, very tangible. And when Jesus is talking about going to, to heaven, he says, I go and prepare a place for you and I'll come back to take you with, to be with me that you may also be where I am. And then Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And all of the disciples are thinking, Jesus, we, we don't know where you're going or the way. But Thomas is this literalist who's not scared to speak up. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Thomas has this unique personality. He's a question asker. He's a realist. He's very literal and tangible. And maybe your personality type, you just ask a lot of questions. Jesus meets Thomas for who he is in his personality. And he knows your hurts and disappointments. See, Thomas has spent the last three years all in on the person and mission of Jesus. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000. He saw the blind healed. He saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And now his best friend, who he's placed all of his hopes and dreams for the, for the future and for everything. He's placed everything all in on Jesus. Now he's seen him brutally murdered. And all of his hopes and dreams of the, of the future have all been crushed. And there's something in Thomas that might've just been scared. Where the whole, it's, it, it, it just felt too good to be true. Maybe, maybe you feel some of that. Where, where just life hasn't gone the way you thought. You've been hurt and crushed in ways you never thought you would be. And, and now you're just scared to believe in anything, especially something that sounds as good as a God who loves you and created you for relationship with you. He was scared to believe again. Maybe it just seemed too good to be true. See, I believe Thomas wanted to believe, but he just couldn't. I think there's a difference. Some people today, I think, don't want to believe. There's a difference between doubt and, and disbelief. Henry Drummond said it this way. Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is I can't believe. Unbelief is I won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with Jesus wants us to be honest with him in our doubts and he meets us in our doubts. Here's the last thing and we're done. 
Sometimes the greatest doubters become the greatest missionaries. John 20, 29, after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus says this sentence, which I, I think it has a few different meanings, but he says, then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed, but just by the way, everyone up until this point who had believed in Jesus had seen him. Everybody had. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So I wonder if part of what Jesus is doing is talking to Thomas about the people who will never have the chance to see what he saw, but will believe in Jesus because Thomas is going to tell them about him. 1498, when the Portuguese arrived in India, they were surprised to find Christian communities thriving in the south of the Indian subcontinent. They were even more surprised by the locals' certainty that their church had been established by St. Thomas. They shouldn't have been surprised as countless travelers, including Marco Polo 200 years prior, had claimed that the saint's grave was in India. See, St. Thomas had preached in modern-day Afghanistan, modern-day Iran, and India. And, and had won thousands of converts. And now there's this group, even to this day, in India that called themselves the St. Thomas Christians. There's about four million of them to this day that say it all began with someone who was a doubter, who Jesus met, them in, met him in his doubts. Everything changed to where he believed the doubter became a preacher ultimately ended up dying for his faith because Jesus met him in his doubts. And I believe Jesus wants to meet all of us in our doubts. And John, in Mark chapter nine, we see this story. There was this father whose son was having an incredibly tough time. Nobody could help him. Not even the disciples were able to help him. And now this man is having this conversation with Jesus, last part of Mark 9, 22. And this guy says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, it was like he just blurted it out. There wasn't time to process. There wasn't time to say the right thing. He just blurts out and he says, I believe Help my unbelief. I think it's one of the greatest prayers we can pray. I wonder if as we are in this series over these next few weeks, this reasonable doubt series, talking about the things that cause us to wrestle with doubt, talking about how do we respond to doubt. I, what, what if through these next few weeks that would, we would just join with that father, with, with that prayer that says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we're grateful that you are not scared or insecure when we have questions, struggle with moments, seasons, doubt. And God, we're grateful that you are a God that, that it wants to meet us in our doubt. And so God, just like that Father just exclaimed, just shouted out face to face with Jesus. 
where he said, Jesus, I believe, but would you help me with my unbelief? God, I pray that you do that in each of our lives, in our areas of, of conscious doubt, in our areas of unconscious doubt. God, that you would help our unbelief. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.